Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Genesis 26. We won't get there for a few minutes, but that will be the first text we stop off at. And you'll find the notes in the bulletin. We finished our study of the text of the Gospel of Luke three weeks ago. The last two weeks, we've done an overview of Luke. After spending three and a half years in it, thought it would be helpful to then look at it in the big picture. And this week and the next one or two weeks, we'll be looking at some major themes in Luke. It's just after this much time in Luke, I'm going to have a hard time letting it go. We will move on eventually. We'll be moving on to the Psalms. But major themes in Luke, especially themes that may not jump out right at you. The theme I want to look at this morning is Jesus meals with sinners. Jesus meals with sinners, what that means for us, what that means in light of the Old Testament, and what that means for the church. It may surprise you to learn that Luke has more encounters of Jesus at table with people than all the other Gospels. It's a major charge brought against him. And the early church um, learned a lot from Jesus' practice of table fellowship. And so I want to spend our time this morning looking at this issue. Um, I want to suggest to you that meals, or at least meals with with people around a table, I don't just mean stopping at McDonald's on the way home, but but a meal, having someone over, fellowship, or as I'm referring to as table fellowship, is a big deal in the Bible. It's a very big deal. We're going to start our study actually looking at the Old Testament, which is why I've had you turn to Genesis. But it is a very big deal, and God has had much to say in his word, both the Old Testament and the New, about his people and how they're to eat, who they're to eat with, what the significance of that is. And I hope by the end of our time this morning, you'll have a greater appreciation for the good gift that God has given us in meals and food and each other, and that we will be encouraged to model his pattern, and obey his instructions. So we're going to look at this in three points. The first is Jesus' Bible and table fellowship. And Jesus' Bible, of course, when he walked the earth, was the Old Testament. So we're going to do a brief survey of the Old Testament's teaching and understanding on meals. Um, and this is going to be brief. It's huge. I have an eight-page document that I just put together taking notes in the Old Testament, and we're going to have to spend a few minutes here, so some of this I will ask you to take my word for, or if that's not good enough, and it shouldn't be, you can ask me for a copy of that, or we can talk some more at a later ABF, but Jesus' um, Bible and table fellowship, and I just want to look at this in two points. The Old Testament's teaching on meals between man and man, or woman and man, or family, whatever, and meals between God and man, meals in the, in the life of the religious life of Israel. And you'd be surprised at just how many meals are recorded in the book of Genesis alone. Let me give you some examples. Obviously, there's the terrible meal that Adam and Eve partook in Genesis 3. Then um, in Genesis 14, Melchizedek and Abraham have a meal. Abraham tithes a tenth of all that he possesses. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine, and they have a meal. Um, Abraham offers a meal to his three angelic visitors. Lot does the same in Genesis 19. Abraham throws a banquet in Genesis 21 to celebrate Isaac's weaning. Um, Bethuel's family enjoys a festive meal in honor of Rebekah's engagement to Isaac. In Genesis 29, a similar feast celebrating Jacob and Leah. Um, Then we have in Genesis 25, Esau sells his meal. He sells his birthright for a meal. 
And how, of course, does Jacob secure the birthright from Isaac? In part by preparing a meal for his father. And what you start to learn as you study through the Old Testament and these use of these meals, and here's your blank, and I'll try to explain it after we fill in the blank, is this. Meals between people. Meals is an event. Meals is a social activity demonstrated and helped create peace, mutual acceptance, and common accord. Meals demonstrated and helped create peace, mutual acceptance, and common accord. And here's what I mean. To have someone at your table is to be at peace with them. I can't think of any examples in the Old Testament of inviting your enemies to your table. Of, of inviting the one who is opposed to you. And if you think about this yourself, I think it makes sense. Where is your most intimate setting? It's in your home, around your table. And you don't want your enemies, those people who provoke you or those people you may have something against at that table. This is a time for fellowship. And so being at a meal together, both parties then have to be at peace. There's, there's no hostility. There's some level of mutual acceptance, not necessarily equality, but mutual acceptance. So in the example of Abraham tithing to Melchizedek, Abraham recognizes Melchizedek is greater than he is. Melchizedek, as the priest of God most high, blesses Abraham. And on that basis of them rightly relating to each other, there is mutual acceptance. Mutual acceptance not meaning equality, but we rightly appraise each other. And common accord. We have something in common together. Now, it either demonstrates that or it's used to create that. And here's where to look at Genesis 26 as a perfect example. Genesis 26, starting in verse 26, when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Azuzoth, his advisor, and Pekol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a swarm pact between us, because between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as you have not, as we have not touched you, and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So they, they come, they were enemies, there was hostility. They say, We want to be at peace with you, Isaac. We want to make a covenant with you. We want to make a treaty with you. We want to be friends. What's the very next thing they do? So he made them a feast. They ate and drank. In the morning, they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. So here a meal is demonstrating this newfound accord. There, there was hostility. Isaac, what are you doing? What is this there between you and me? Well, we want to be at peace with you, Isaac. We want to make a covenant with you. Well, the best way to demonstrate this new relationship is a meal. And in some senses, the best way to test it out. And then they have this meal together and make a covenant. This is seen regularly in the Old Testament that a marriage covenant is about to be made. There's a feast that's thrown. There's a meal to associate this new relationship. And I don't have time to go through the entire Old Testament on this. But again, the basic concept is this. To be, to be at table with someone, to invite someone into your home, to be sitting around a common table with a common food. And normally you're eating from a common bowl it's, it's much more intimate in many respects than our meals now, where I have my own silverware, my own plate, my own bowl. Um, it's, it's much more intimate in that sense. It demonstrated, it shows, and it helps to create peace, mutual acceptance, and common accord. Now, because of that, a violation 
of such a meal is a great offense. A violation of such a meal is a serious offense. And I can think of at least two examples in, in the Old Testament to prove this point. I'll give you th- actually three. The first is the example of Ishmael. In Genesis, Ishmael was the firstborn in one sense of Abraham, but he was born of the servant woman, and God sent him a child of promise, Isaac. And originally, they, they all dwelt in one home together until the weaning of Isaac. And in Genesis 21, 8 through 10, we read, the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to, Egypt, to Abraham laughing. And this is meant to be understood as scoffing or mocking. Ishmael is a teenager by now. He's already been circumcised. We know he was 13 when he was circumcised. He's older than that. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. What's the context? Abraham is celebrating the weaning of his child of promise, this this miracle child born to him and to Sarah in their old age. God has kept his promise. God gave him the son. He, He invites his friends to celebrate with him. And here is one not celebrating but mocking. And so he needs to leave. He's he's violating the spirit of the meal. This is a meal of celebration for God's promise and his faithfulness. Here's someone violating that protocol. He's told to leave. Or you think of how angry Esau is and Isaac himself when Jacob dresses up, puts the fur on his hands and arms, and serves a meal, which again is associated with a covenant or a blessing. He betrays that. One other example in the book of Judges. Um, Remember, Judges is meant to show you how messed up things are, and so we need to read the story of Jael and Sisera in that light. So Sisera's fleeing, and Jael invites him into her tent. She offers him a bowl of milk, tells him she'll stand guard. She offers him hospitality. She offers him food, and then stabs a tent peg through his head while he sleeps. And it's shrewd, but it's a complete and total betrayal of fable fellowship. This is one of the chief torments of the Messiah himself in the Psalms. It is my friend who I ate with regularly, who has lifted his hand up against me. For my enemy, I could stand it. It was my close fellow. So between man and man, it, it demonstrates and creates peace, mutual acceptance, common accord. And when one violates this protocol, one betrays it, blasphemes it, it's a serious offense. Esau was upset. Okay we got to move quickly, so let's now look at meals between God and man. Meals between God and man. And just pause and think about it. Feasts were, were a large part of and were central to Israel's religious life. You have the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Booths, Passover. You were regularly gathering and feasting as a faithful Israelite throughout the year. And that's a large portion of their worship. And if you go on and think of the dietary laws, point two, that were required for ritual purity, the Lord God had a very great concern of how his people ate. Who they ate with, with what hands they ate, what food. You think of Daniel refusing that he will not eat the delicacies of the Babylonians, being faithful to God. 
And, and this dietary laws are required for ritual purity. And the third point, and this might be a new thought for some of you, but I want to suggest that we can actually view the sacrificial system in some sense, this isn't the fullness of the sacrificial system, but in some sense as the code of table fellowship to approach God. In other words, if the question is, could I, could an Israelite approach God with mutual acceptance, peace, and common accord? Could I approach a table with God? The sacrificial system in some sense can be seen as that. If, if you, we don't need to turn there, but in Leviticus 7, um, the law for the peace offering is given. In the peace offering, a portion is set apart for the Lord, a portion is set aside for the priest, and a portion is set aside for the person who gives it to eat. So here's this meal, the, the, the burnt offering goes up as a savoring aroma to the Lord. He doesn't have a body, he doesn't consume food in that sense. And the priest, and the one who offers it, eat. And consequently, if you're going to approach God's table in that sense, if you're going to approach him and try to have this type of peace and accord with him, there's a lot of washings, a lot of rituals, a lot of hoops you need to jump through. As a friend of mine uh, said, a meal with God is a black tie affair. But there is a sense in which you can approach and you, you can be at peace with God. You can enjoy, in some sense, that type of fellowship. And the sacrificial system, in some sense, pictures that which is why point four here, similarly, just as there's great offense when meal and meal etiquette is broken among man, there is great offense. Violating this code was a serious offense. Let me just read to you in the protocol from Leviticus 7 about the peace offering. One of the offerings that can be given, but this one particularly where the person offering it also eats in the presence in the temple If he fails to eat it, if he saves it for later for a snack, he is to be cut off from the people. I'll pick it up in verse 15. The flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted. Neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted. He who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall, not, shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh, but the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offering while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And just two chapters, three chapters later, we have the example of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who in their temple service offering incense, offer strange or unordered fire and are burnt to death. So one way I want to suggest you can look at the sacrificial system is as a code for drawing near to God in this type of table fellowship. And just as there's a great offense horizontally with man when that is betrayed, so God likewise is insistent that those who would draw near him would be holy. And if they do not obey the protocol, they will be cut off. Now this ultimately leads to the Jewish understanding of their separation from the Gentiles. And it's not just the Pharisees who didn't believe you could touch Gentiles. Peter himself in Acts 10 
admits that it's not lawful for us to eat with Gentiles. Now, even though there is no specific prohibition in the Old Testament against eating with Gentiles, by clear and direct implication, that comes out almost necessarily as a consequence. Because the notion of uncleanness is it contaminates. And if you touch something unclean, you become unclean. And these uncircumcised Gentiles who do not have promises from God are walking around constantly in a state of uncleanness and in a setting where you're eating from common bowls. You will inevitably touch something they touch. You yourself will become unclean. So it's an almost absolute necessary consequence. There will be separation. So what you see largely in the Old Testament is, and I'll, and I'll read a quote here from Craig Blomberg. Eating and drinking in Genesis are thus never ordinary matters. That's not to say Abraham and his descendants did not normally eat ordinary meals, but the ones chosen for inclusion in this book all convey additional meaning, usually in the establishment of harmony or peace, where there has been estrangement or in celebrating important gifts of God to his people, At times, however, they turn into occasions for treachery and deceit, most notably between Jacob and Esau, sin made all the more heinous because of their links with the meals at which they occurred, which should have been completely happy occasions. And then speaking of the sacrificial system, he writes this, um, these meals, he's referring to the ones prescribed in Leviticus 7, um, all of them involve food of some kind or another that Yahweh was believed to consume in some sense, and in some cases, the, uh, in some cases, the priests who officiate can eat a portion of the meat. What uniquely, what what is unique in the fellowship or peace offering, are even those offering the sacrifice join in the meal. All who eat must be ritually clean, just as the sacrificial animals must be unblemished. Purity and holiness remain dominant objectives throughout. So. This is the context that Jesus is living in in Luke. Meals are a big deal. Welcoming someone into your home, inviting them to your table, is is declaring your peace or your intent to be at peace, your commonality. So who you eat with then demonstrates to anyone watching who you're at peace with, who you have accord with, who you accept, who accepts you. And this is, of course, now if you turn out of Luke, Chapter 5, one of the issues that offended the Pharisees. And again, that notion of contamination. You eat with someone who is unclean, you become unclean. Now, Jesus, in Luke 5, has just claimed radical divine priority and prerogative. He's just forgiven the paralytic. And the Pharisees rightly wonder, they grumble, they do more than wonder they grumble who is this who says he can forgive sins only God alone can forgive sins and Jesus says I I do have that authority so Jesus has made huge claims of his association with God remember how God is very clear about the unclean not coming close about someone who wants to come and and as it were have a meal with him if he's unclean he's be killed cut off Well, pick it up in 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Tax collectors, of course, are betrayers of national Israel. They've bought a tax franchise from Rome. They're perceived as robbing their countrymen, and in many cases, that's accurate. Zacchaeus, who is also a tax collector, acknowledges this as much and is promised to repay 
And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table. And in Luke, when you read reclining at table, this is a formal meal. You might even call this a feast. This is, this is not um, having a peanut butter sandwich. This is a meal. This is inviting him into his home. And who's filling up this household? Tax collectors. Verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, how do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now their logic is, these people are unfaithful Israelites. These people have betrayed Israel. Therefore, they've betrayed the God of Israel. They have dealings with Romans. They're almost certainly unclean. How can you, Jesus, one who claims to be so holy, so high up, having the ability even to forgive sins, how can you accept them? How can you have commonality with them? How can you eat with them? How can you not become unclean yourself in doing so? I mean, I want you to get their charge has some prima facie merit to it. It's not simple religious bigotry. It flows out of theology that has many right assumptions. And before we answer the, the problem, I want to look at the next example. Luke 7. Just turn over a page or so to Luke 7. Messengers from John the Baptist come. And they inquire about Jesus. And Jesus answers, you see the works I'm doing, so yeah, you know I'm the Messiah. He doesn't explain himself. He just, nope, you are right. I'm the Messiah. Bear with me. And then he vindicates John. Pick it up in 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too... They declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Then Jesus immediately, to what will I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say... He has a demon, and the Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say it, look at him, a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So again, Jesus now reports their charge against him. He has dealings with tax collectors and sinners. And sinner being a term for a notorious sinner, probably a prostitute or an adulteress or someone of that ilk. Which leads right into the, the next situation when that's questioned of him. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with his, the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, we know for a fact she's actually touching Jesus. So in Pharisaic logic, if she is unclean, and almost certainly the assumption would be she is, she has just made Jesus unclean. If you're a fastidious Jew, you're taking great, great precautions not to accidentally touch something unclean. We read that in Leviticus 7, because if you go into the temple, if you try to approach God in fellowship while there is some impurity or uncleanness in you, you're killed. So I imagine 
you would be very, very, very fastidious and attentive to make sure you don't accidentally brush up against something unclean. And it can be, uncleanness can even be spread through third objects. If someone is in their uncleanness and you touch the bed they've been on or the blanket they sat on, it can spread to you. And that leads then Simon, verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who invited this him saw him, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, Simon isn't necessarily condemning him, but he's certainly, this doesn't fit. If, if an average everyday Jew is going to avoid the unclean, how much more so a holy and righteous prophet? And then turn to Luke 15, where the accusation is made a, uh, most clearly, and it's its longest answer. Luke 15 Verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And again, what's their charge? The scum of Israel, the lowest of the low, the most despised and wicked People in Israel are flocking to Jesus, and he welcomes them. Come on in. There's a seat at my table. And in doing so, the understanding, if you go back to the top, is he's recognizing some mutual acceptance. How could you accept such people? Read the condemnations of the law upon them. There's some peace between them, and there's some commonality, some common accord. How on earth can the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, the Christ of God, how on earth can he comport himself in this way? Scandalize them. And I want to consider, before looking at Jesus' answer, but turn back to five, because that's where we'll start looking at his answer, the ways Jesus does not answer. Now, my pastor's penton next month will sort of rehash some of this. But Jesus does not respond the way you and I might be tempted to respond. Who are you to judge? Their sins aren't that bad. We're all sinners after all. All sins equal. So they're no worse than you. They're, they're just as fit for my table as you. He doesn't answer that way. He doesn't try to minimize their sin. In fact, in dealing with a sinful woman, he explicitly affirms her sinfulness. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. But Jesus never tries to minimize the sinfulness of these people. The, the argument is never You've, you've overestimated their guilt. You've got too large a view of their sin. He never comes at it that way. That's never his answer. Neither does he in any way try to justify it because of their upbringing. That, that's very popular now, nowadays. These people have not had the privileges and advantages you have had. They're socially, economically disadvantaged, disprivileged. And so you've got to excuse some of their sin and their crime. What else could they do? He doesn't argue that way. Nor does he argue that God is not angry at sin. He could say, well, yes, they're sinners, and yes, they're great sinners, but God isn't angry at sin. He just loves. Doesn't argue that way. How does Jesus resolve the tension of his acceptance, welcoming, letting himself being touched by sinners and tax collectors? 
His answer is the same every time. Here's your blank. They are repentant and forgiven sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. So let's look at the four examples again. In each example, that's the answer Jesus gives. Levi, chapter 5, they grumble. You're eating with a tax collector. Verse 31, Jesus answered him, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call, not, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We just saw Jesus call Levi, and Levi left everything to follow him. And now that Levi has repented and he's following Jesus, Jesus is happy to eat with him. Turn to chapter 7. Luke gives us the clue here just before. Verse 29. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors, notice that inclusion. They declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. Pray tell what was John's baptism. It was a baptism of repentance. These people have repented. They've received John's baptism. They rejoice at what he says, and they include tax collectors. Which, if you jump down to 34, explains, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yes, the ones who responded to John. Yes, the one who received his baptism. Likewise, the tension is resolved in the example of the sinful woman. Look at verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, doesn't try to minimize it, doesn't try to not make them a big deal. She's got many sins. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. That's, that's the basis. This is a forgiven sinner. And so she can kiss and anoint and weep on my feet all she wants because she's been forgiven. And then go to Luke 15, where I think the most decisive and complete answer along these lines is given. Now it's important to note Luke 15, 1 comes right after the end of Luke 14. And Luke 14 contains Jesus' strongest, most absolute demands of discipleship, right? So you've got um, verse 26. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and yes, sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now read 15.1 in light of that immediate preceding call. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus has made it very clear what he demands of those who would come after him and come to his table. Renounce all that you have. Make an allegiance and a loyalty to me greater than any familial bond. Pick up your cross and follow me. And to illustrate that point, he tells three parables about losing something with escalating cost. One out of 100 sheep, one out of 10 coins, one out of two sons. We looked at this briefly last week, so I'll just point to the ethic. At the end of the parable of the lost sheep, verse 7, just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. The joy is not over sinners. The joy is over sinners who repent. 
than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then the parable of the lost coin, verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy between angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then, of course, the parable of the prodigal son, we see explicitly and clearly the prodigal son's repentance. So Jesus' answer is he will gladly welcome. There's a party in heaven when repentant sinners come to him. (coughs) Pardon me. Which answers, I think, the question... If Jesus were here on earth today, would he be hanging out in the bars with people? No, he would not. And he might be there to call them to repentance. But his fellowship would absolutely span the gamut of all types of notorious sinners. I'm sure we would be shocked at the people Jesus called to himself. But each and every one of them in whom he was within fellowship would be a repentant sinner. Jesus would not be relaxing in fellowship with people in their debauchery and in their sin. That, that's his answer. So that brings up another question. How do we explain Jesus eating with the Pharisees? Is he accepting them? Is there a cord between them? Now remember, I said an invitation to a meal can be seen as an invitation. Let us make peace. And in the case of Simon, I think there's an attempt to do that. Jesus answers him by name, speaks to him, instructs him. But what we frequently see happening in the meals with Jesus and the Pharisees is their lack, the lack of the reality that the meal represents is seen as it explodes, as Jesus condemns the host, as Jesus condemns everyone present. I mean, after Jesus gets done pronouncing his woes upon the Pharisees and then woes upon the lawyers, the dinner's over. I can't imagine anyone, well, it's time for dessert. It's done. It's blown up. Why? Because there is no real commonality. There is no real acceptance. They don't accept him for who he is. And in their unrepentant state, he doesn't accept them. They have not assumed his ethic. But Jesus will go to the Pharisee's house for dinner in the hopes that perhaps there may be peace. Perhaps there might be commonality. But he never compromises the truth. He never says, well, I don't want to be an impolite guest. I don't want to be rude. He shatters the facade when the reality of their lack of commonality, their lack of um, peace is made evident. But beyond his practice with eating with sinners, Jesus announced a greater intimacy and fellowship. Jesus announced and modeled unprecedented fellowship with God. Jesus announced and modeled unprecedented fellowship with God. First and foremost, in his relationship to his disciples. Now remember, Jesus in the Gospels clearly identifies himself as God. I'll just remind you of the sinful woman that he let cling to his feet, kissing them and weeping on them. Such intimacy is never seen in the Old Testament temple worship. The Old Testament worship was all about this far and no further. Make sure you're washed. Make sure you haven't touched anything unclean. Okay, you can come a little closer. Here, this ex-prostitute or adulteress is, is weeping and kissing upon Jesus' feet. Incredible intimacy. In Luke 8, we are told that his mother and brothers came to him. They could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. According to Romans 8, he is the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus 
relates to those who come to him in repentance and faith as family. That is incredible. And the direct intimacy. You get to talk to Jesus in prayer without a priest, without a third party. Incredible intimacy. That's his next point. His instructions on prayer. In Luke 11, they come to say, teach us to pray. Our Father. You get to call God who made the heavens and the earth, who will judge the living and the dead, who will sentence the wicked to eternal punishment. You get to call him daddy. Incredible, incredible intimacy. And not only that, but you, you are told to be bold in your approach. You might think if your father was this great sovereign king, you might come and just sort of, like my kids do, if they're not sure they should be out of bed, you hear this little... Did the door just knock? I'm not sure. What is it? And then you know, one of the kids asks if they can listen to music a little longer or something. No, we're told they're just coming bang on the door like a, like a man who's received a traveling guest and he wants to offer him hospitality and he doesn't have enough food. So he goes to his friend and his friend says, I'm in bed. And he just keeps banging on the door until his friend gets up. He says, we need to pray like that. We need to pray like the persistent widow. Just relentlessly. I mean, it's remarkable, the intimacy that Jesus announces that we can have with God. And you may not have thought to think of this, but you can almost describe all of redemptive history in terms of meals. There was a very poorly done meal in Genesis 3 that led us to great problems. But Jesus drank the cup of the Father's wrath which means we now await the wedding feast of the Lamb. The consummation of the age at both ends, beginning and end, is a meal. We await a messianic kingdom where, according to Jesus, we'll be eating at table with Abraham. He tells the disciples in Luke 22, I will not drink from the cup of the vine, the fruit of the vine, until I drink it with you in the kingdom. And so... One of the excellencies of the age to come is there will be table fellowship among God's people with Abraham, Jesus involved, supping around a common table. And all of that implies, all that implies, probably most clearly, if you turn to Luke 22, it's seen in the institution of a meal, the Lord's Supper, or as we call it, communion, which we'll be celebrating next week. Now here, there's something ironic or amazing. The meal pictures the means and the end. The meal pictures the means and the end. Think about that. Jesus says the elements of the meal, the bread and the wine, represent his broken body and his spread out blood, purchasing the cup of the new covenant. So it pictures the means, how salvation is accomplished. But that Jesus invites us to his table also pictures the end, the peace, the acceptance, the commonality, and the common accord that results because of it. So the meal pictures the means and the end, the sacrifice and the peace and acceptance that results from the sacrifice. And he takes the Old Testament meal of the Passover, which pictured the angel of death passing over in judgment, and he turns and transforms it into this ongoing sign that we give. And, and, and those realities are present in communion. 
This is the intimacy we have. Jesus invites us to his table on his terms, on his conditions. Will we accept him as who he is? As the Lord, will we in coming recognize our need of forgiveness? But if we will, he welcomes all to come to his table and share. Which brings us now quickly to point three. We move from Jesus' Bible and table fellowship, Jesus' example of table fellowship, finally to Jesus' body and table fellowship. By body, I mean the church. What is there for us in this? What are we to learn from this? What are we to do from this? Well, I'm going to move very quickly. But first, just as there is great offense between man and man in violating table fellowship, and just as there is even greater offense in violating the sacrificial system, we would do well to examine ourselves before coming to Christ's table. Let us not violate the spirit of what is being offered us there. And we're told quite plainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread of and or the, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. The meal pictures that we are those who come in need, receiving Christ's grace, Christ's forgiveness. We are those who are sinful, and we come in repentance. We come to him as Lord, and we come as one body. And if those realities are not true, we likewise blaspheme that meal. Jude writes about this, about false teachers, about false disciples in their midst when he writes, Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish in Korah's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts, which is his unique term for, I believe, the communion meal. They are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them forever. You don't, you don't want to be a hidden reef at communion. <laughs> so examine yourself. Take it seriously. That would be the first application. And when we frequently do warn of this, we prepare to take communion. Second would be abstain from forbidden fellowship. Because who you eat with and who you fellowship with matters. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul first deals with a specific case of an unrepentant case of sexual immorality in the church at Corinth. He deals with that specific case. Then he responds to some questions they asked him in a letter they sent to him about a more broad sense. Pick up in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then, you would need to go out of the world. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what I have to do with judging outsiders, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So God cares who you and I eat with. And there are people we are forbidden to welcome to our table. 
You see, God's body, Christ's body on earth is meant to image and picture the realities in heaven. And when someone is alienated from God from their unrepentant sin, when someone has not heeded the call to return, they are out of fellowship with God. And likewise, God wants his body, his church to model that breaking of fellowship. It is a kindness. Paul goes on to say it's done that their soul might be saved on the last day. It's not done in, as a shunning but there are people who are forbidden to fellowship with. There are people who are forbidden to invite to our table. Because these things matter and it's serious. They are at war with our God. How can we pretend that we, his emissaries, are at peace with them? Likewise, we're forbidden from inviting to our table false teachers. These are the instructions given in 2 John. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him a greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So if a Jehovah Witness comes to my door and we're having a conversation, he gets thirsty, I'd probably give him a glass of water. I'm not inviting him to my table. I'm not inviting him to my home. Come and sup with us. No, that's not happening. So examine yourself before you come to Christ's table. Abstain from forbidden fellowship. And let me make one brief comment about the the forbidden fellowship with unrepentant sinners. When when they repent, we're, we're supposed to restore that. And Jesus taught that clearly in Luke. In Luke 17, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. When you turn to the Lord and say, I repent, he invites you to his table. And I think what Jesus is saying is that peace in the body, it can be broken by sin. There can be an issue of sin between two people. But when it is resolved, when the person repents, we are back at peace. In other words, there's no room for, I forgive him and I love him and I don't like him and I don't want to see them. If you're not willing to have someone at your table, you're not at peace with them. You're to forgive as God forgives. God says, I forgive you. Come to my table. If you're unwilling to say that to the person you claim to have forgiven, you haven't. Not like your Father in heaven forgives, and that is the standard. Forgive us just as we forgive those who sin against us. So sure, unrepentant sin can break fellowship, but as soon as repentance is in place, it is restored. Which leads us to point C. Engage in lavish hospitality. Engage in lavish hospitality. We were aliens and strangers, and Christ came and he sought us, and he invited us to come and sup with him, to eat at this table. He made us his friends who were his enemies. We should be likewise doing the same. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for a failure to do this. In Luke 14, they were all concerned with the honor associated with a meal. Because remember, part of a meal is rightly esteeming somebody. And so Abraham rightly recognizes that Melchizedek's greater than him. Okay, we have, we have an understanding. We can, on that basis, have a meal together. Well, then we need to know who's the greatest. And so they're trying to figure out what seat to sit in. They got all caught up in that element of things. Because meals... And feasts can be a way of showing honor. Absolutely they can. But they were also failing 
to recognize that inviting someone is also a way of extending a desire to be at peace and to have fellowship with. And so he tells them this in Luke 14. He said to the man who had invited them, so he says to his host, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you are repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. Now, does that not more picture our Father in heaven who invites us, strangers, aliens, exiles, Gentiles? He invites us to come in. He goes out and he seeks us, which pictures our Father's heart. So we're told to, to be lavishly hospitable. And the Greek word for hospitality literally means a lover of strangers. And so this is more of that aspect of hospitality where you, I want to create peace. I want to have oneness. I want to be in accord with you. Come to my table. Let's see if we can do that. And hospitality is all throughout the New Testament. It's one of the more frequent commands. You're not qualified to be an elder or deacon if you're not doing this. You're not qualified to be on the widow's list if you haven't done this. And it's not just hospitality to the brethren, but according to Hebrews 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. These are commands. God has done it for us. Christ has modeled it for us, and he wants his body to act in the same way. We live in a world where we're so busy and caught up with so Many lesser things. Brings us to point D here. Enjoy and model the peace, unity, and fellowship which Christ provided for his body. Turn to Acts 2. Turn to Acts chapter 2. God has adopted us as his sons. Christ is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And he would have us treat each other in the same way. And that is exactly what the early church did in Acts 2. Peter got up, he preached at Pentecost. Thousands were saved. Verse 42, you're going to see it twice in the coming passage. They devoted themselves. What, what did this early church of repentant people devote themselves to? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of the bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the needs, proceeds of all as they had need. Voluntary communism is wonderful. Enforced is terrible. But here they're gladly selling their possessions to provide for each other. It's wonderful. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. These, these people who we know are from diverse areas of the empire, this early church, which constituted of slaves and masters, Greeks and he, Hebrews, men and women, 
They're all sitting at tables together in fellowship. And that's the glory of the Lord in that. that that's something that the world didn't understand. And so enjoy it and model it. God has made unity. I'm going to read, final passage I'm going to read this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2. See, Christ has done a great work in redeeming his bride. And he intends to be glorified for it. Listen to this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Remember the meal that we eat pictures the means and the end? He himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. And through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. God intends his household to eat together. And the glory of the Lord is seen in rich and poor, Jew and Greek, slave and free, fellowshipping in each other's homes, demonstrating this commonality. This is what the early church was devoting themselves to. And so I, just, I believe we are a church that does this well. I'd encourage you to do it better still. If your schedule is so busy that having people to your table or accepting invitations to others' tables is difficult, can I suggest to be obedient, you, you need to alter your schedule? This is a priority. Part of the reason I did this message is because I don't think we realize the priority put on these things. We should regularly be making time to bring people into our homes, bring people to our table, going to others' tables, and not just our friends, that's good as well, but also reaching out, trying to make new friends, new peace. We're commanded to show hospitality. And the glory of Christ's body is seen not just when we hang out with and we invite the people over who we like and like us and look like us, but when the diversity of the body is seen in the diversity of people around a table. Christ put the expectations of the Pharisees on their head. If, if, if people would come to him understanding who he is, if they'd come in repentance, he would welcome and celebrate anyone coming. And if God has welcomed someone else sitting next to you, who are you to reject them? He has made us one body. He has made us one household. He has made us one family. And now he calls upon us to enjoy that and act like it. Act like it. Jesus eats with sinners, and we should too. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, how glorious and wonderful it is that you, um, you sought us while we were your enemies, and you have made us your friends. More so than just friends, we are your sons and your daughters. We are your brothers and sisters. We 
are your household and your family. God, it is difficult for us to um, act like this. Give us the courage and the faith um, to believe what you declare about us, that we might put it into practice for the world to see the glory of your body, the glory of this variegated, manifold, diverse, wonderful body, the church. Help us to live that out, to incarnate it, to let it be seen, let it be our joy. Help us to find time, more time for fellowship, more time to be in each other's homes. We might be knit together in love. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.